Hello everybody and welcome to Kickback, your global anti-corruption podcast. Enjoy today's episode of this joint production of the Interdisciplinary Corruption Research Network and the Global Anti-Corruption Blog. You can subscribe to the show via Spotify, SoundCloud or iTunes. If you like what we do, leave us a rating at Apple Podcast. If you want to get in touch with the show, follow us on Facebook or send an email to info at icrnetwork.org. Welcome, everybody, to our latest episode of Kickback, the Global Anti-Corruption Podcast. I'm delighted today to be joined by Deborah Laprava, who is currently working with a group called The Sentry, uh, which looks into how corruption and kleptocracy fuel war crimes and mass atrocities uh, in many countries in the world, uh, particularly in sub-Saharan Africa. Prior to that, Deborah was a supervising special agent with the United States Federal Bureau of Investigation for 20 years, where she worked on, among other things, asset seizure and asset recovery issues. Uh, Deborah, thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you, Matthew. It's great to be here. I think I'd like to start out our conversation asking you a bit about your career at the FBI working on asset recovery issues. And maybe one good place to start that our, our listeners might be interested in is exactly what the responsibility is of the FBI in the asset seizure and forfeiture process and how the FBI agent works with the Department of Justice, because I know there's a unit at the Department of Justice that we informally call the Kleptocracy Initiative. Yes, I mean, it's actually very similar to any criminal investigation in that the agent is the investigator. I mean, um, I had brilliant DOJ attorneys that I worked with, but they are prosecutors. So it is a uh, symbiotic relationship where the investigator gets guidance as in what is the best evidence, what kind of where evidence may exist. I could not get evidence out of a foreign government without going through a DOJ attorney through a mutual legal assistance request. So the FBI agent is the investigator person who does the interviews, who collects the evidence, who does the analysis of evidence that is obtained through either subpoena, through mutual legal assistance, but I can't take it to trial. And so then I work with one of the wonderful DOJ attorneys who is the prosecutor, who files the motions, who uh, travels with me frequently and participates as a true partner in the investigation, or is ultimately responsible for getting foreign evidence, working with our foreign ministries of justice to uh, determine what the you know where, where the criminal conduct was, where the evidence exists abroad, and how the best way for the United States government to obtain that evidence. So how does the process get started? So there are a lot of kleptocrats and others around the world who might have assets either physically in the United States or someplace where the United States would have jurisdiction to seize them. What gets the process rolling in terms of who do you look at? How hard do you look at them? Is it coming from the DOJ? Is it coming from the FBI on its own initiative or your own initiative? How do you know who you should be looking into? All of the above. I mean, it's interesting. People will say, how do you start your cases? I said, well, it's pretty much like four or five different ways. 
One would be, um, I read a really good article in the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times that said uh, 137 condos in the Time Warner building are owned in the name of LLCs. Well, as you read the article, you'll see that a lot of them are like uh, Jimmy Buffett or uh, Brady, uh, Tom Brady, and you say, well, of course, they're going to have their house in an LLC. It's, nobody wants people knocking on Buffett's door. But one was a former Sinaloa cartel, one was a former oligarch out of Russia. And so from a news article, you might say, okay, I believe I have someone in the United States who has bought an asset, a property, and I believe that it is likely they are derived from criminal conduct. So just from reading an article, sometimes it's headlines, like a country has been overthrown and you knew that the last dictator was a kleptocrat. So you're like, okay, well, uh, Venezuela right now is a good example where uh, they're in the middle of what appears to be a difficult transition, but we know that Maduro was a very corrupt leader that billions of dollars has appeared to have left Venezuela. So uh, just from a headline, you could, you know, start a case. There were uh, things like Petrobras in Brazil, the FIFA investigation. There is a, a scandal that breaks out in another country. Well, the United States dollar is still the strongest international currency. So right there, you could say, okay, is money from this scandal hitting the U.S.? So again, it's a headline or a event occurring abroad that triggers a case. And frequently, uh, in the case of Bangladesh, uh, the government of Bangladesh had an election. It was so corrupt that the military government took over and they, they reached out to its foreign partners, including the U.S., and said, could you help us fight corruption in our country? The call went from their Ministry of Justice to our, our U.S. Department of Justice. I get a phone call from a DOJ attorney saying, Debbie, we need an agent uh, willing to work with us. You know, I asked the FBI, we opened a case, and we proceeded to, for the next several years, work with Bangladesh to fight corruption in their country, help them recover assets, and help, uh, we actually testified in Bangladesh court to help prosecute corrupt officials there. So that makes me wonder about another aspect of these high-profile asset recovery cases that's often discussed in, uh, among commentators, and that has to do with the fact that these cases seem to have often very significant foreign policy or international relations ramifications. Um, my impression is that most of the DOJ prosecutors that I've met don't really think in those terms. They think about, if, if can I prove a crime? Mm -hmm. But I wonder whether the high profile of a lot of these cases, the fact that they're very often actual foreign heads of state or their very close relatives or associates involved, means that these cases have more of a, of a diplomatic or foreign policy dimension. And if that affects the investigations in any way, either pushing for more aggressive investigation, pushing for less aggressive investigation or anything, or is, the, is it in your experience that the law enforcement process in these asset recovery cases is more or less completely walled off from, let's say, the Department of State or the White House or others who might care about political or diplomatic implications of these kinds of actions? I wouldn't say it's completely walled off, but I can tell you that I was incredibly fortunate that I was never told to investigate or told not to investigate because of U.S. national policy. Bangladesh, again, is a good example because we don't get anything from Bangladesh. We don't buy oil from them. Uh, we were just doing the right thing. So, I mean, I came back from Bangladesh and I said, how will I get people to care? But the United States did it. I mean, we opened a case and we dedicated assets and we helped them fight the good fight. And so there are some, there are doubtless that there are cases uh, where Ukraine is a perfect example where, but it wasn't just the United States. Ukraine fell, Yanukovych fled. 
and the United States said, Ukraine has been one of our partners. We want to help them. And within 10 days, we had a team on the ground in Ukraine. But it wasn't just the U.S. The U.K. was there and other countries showed up as well, all doing the right thing. And uh, it was a lot of assets were dedicated to Ukraine because it was such a monumental case. It, you didn't have one corrupt official. Like one MBD, the Malaysia case, is pretty much the prime minister and his inner circle. But when Yanukovych fled Ukraine, you had President Yanukovych and 68 cabinet members flee with him. So it's not one case, it's 69 cases, at least. And so it required more of a commitment by the FBI and the number of bodies dedicated to this investigation. But I can honestly say in my cases, they were never politically motivated and they were never directed. We, we do work closely with State Department because the United States does have foreign policy mandates that have to be addressed. You know, one of the frustrating things is you cannot go after a sitting head of state. So there were times where I would trace money to a foreign corrupt leader, but because of the policy of not seizing the assets of a foreign head of state, that avenue just didn't go any go forward or you save that evidence and hope that in three to five years they won't still be in office or they'll be elected out and then you have the evidence and it can be applied at a later time. Do you think that the fact that you never felt subject to any kind of call it political pressure or maybe that's too pejorative some would mm -hmm. say these issues are so important that of course there should be some kind of relationship to countries foreign policy mm -hmm. priorities but putting that aside the fact that you never felt any political pressure, do you think that that's due to anything about the formal institutions or structures to how these offices work or to informal norms or understandings about what's appropriate? Or do you think it was maybe just good luck that you happened to be working on cases where uh, there wasn't a sufficient incentive for the White House or the State Department to try to weigh in in a direction that you might not have been completely comfortable with? I would probably say it was just kind of the informal understanding that, you know, justice is supposed to be blind. So, you know, I, my mandate was get a crime, solve a crime, put the guy in jail. And so uh, it, it didn't care who the bad guy was. It was, is there evidence of a crime? Does it even meet the merit of the FBI in terms of the amount of manpower that's dedicated? Uh, $100,000 fraud is not going to necessarily even be a blip on our radar, but the, these individuals are taking billions. And uh, so the United States did uh, apply the assets of the FBI to these problems. Can I ask, on the mechanics of these investigations, um, I think a lot of us, including me on the outside, have a very kind of black box understanding of how the asset seizure and forfeiture process works. Mm -hmm. they're, they're the bad guys, they've got their assets, they're stashed somewhere in the U.S. or been used to purchase U.S. assets, and then people like you and your counterparts at DOJ do something, and then the assets eventually come into the possession of the United States government, and then maybe there's a fight about what to do with them, which I want to talk about in a moment. But before we get to that question of what happens to the assets after they've been seized, we talk a little bit about how the process works, how long it takes, uh, the resources that are required. Is this easy? Is this hard? Does it depend a lot? Tell me a little bit and tell our listeners a little bit about from the moment that you read that article, maybe put it this mm -hmm. way, from the moment you read that article in the New York Times or you see that regime fall, or maybe you hear something from your counterpart at the Department of Justice to the point where the money is now in the possession of the U.S. government, what happens? I'll tell you, longevity plays a good role. So be, sticking with one thing, be, I mean, I worked one violation for 
14 or 15 years with the FBI. So these cases are not quick because the evidence usually exists in a foreign jurisdiction. And a lot of these individuals, especially if you're tracing money, use complex financial manipulation layering. And so let's start with a, a condo belonging to a Russian oligarch. The first thing I do is I read this article, I find out that a condo was built and it uh, was purchased and it's a $3 million condo in New York. Okay, who's the owner? Well, public source information, the, new, the, the article uh, says that this Russian oligarch lives there. Who is he? So I start with the data mining. Who is this individual? What was his position while he was in Russia? Why is he currently in the United States? Was he removed from office? Are there allegations of corruption in the foreign jurisdiction? Then whose name is the property purchased in? Is it an LLC? It's from Mauritius. Okay, well then a request has to go through mutual legal assistance to the government of Mauritius to get the incorporation documents for the LLC that was used to purchase the condo in New York. Then what monies were used? So a financial investigation ensues. Uh, subpoenas for bank records. Uh, subpoena the, uh, you interview the real estate agent. Who was it closing? How was the money paid? Was it a wire transfer? getting subpoenas for the purchase documents. Okay, well, where did the money come from? Oh, it came from Dubai. Okay, now working with the government of Dubai to get the bank records out of Dubai to figure out how, how did the money get to Dubai? And you backtrack it to criminal conduct. And the bottom line is, if it's not dirty money, you're not laundering it. So uh, for us to seize a condo in New York, that it has to be the proceeds of criminal conduct. So that criminal conduct occurred probably in this case in Russia. Will we get evidence out of Russia? And so, uh, I mean, that process that I just explained to you could take two years for just the steps that I mentioned to you. The piece about the money having to be the proceeds of criminal activity raises an issue that I gather there's variation across jurisdictions. In the United States, it's not the case, unless I'm wrong, that there needs to be an actual criminal conviction of the party in question. That's correct, which is wonderful. Civil forfeiture requires that there is a preponderance of evidence that the asset to be seized is the proceeds of criminal conduct not that there's been a conviction in a case, which is very beneficial because in foreign jurisdictions, a lot of these kleptocrats work with impunity. They're never going to be prosecuted or they're a fugitive and thus they're never going to be taken to trial. But the, the a civil forfeiture matter is the United States against an asset. When I file a complaint in REM, I am arresting a thing, not a person. So I don't care what criminal conduct you did. My case is, is this condo purchased with the proceeds of a criminal act? So whether it was your criminal act or someone else's criminal act, it doesn't matter. Is this condo the proceeds of criminal, we bought with, derived from criminal proceeds? And that's what I'm investigating. So it doesn't necessarily impact, you know, I don't have to prove that this one kleptocrat committed embezzlement. I have to show that my tracing of money traced this money back to embezzled funds. Five people could have been responsible for that embezzlement, but the money made its way through shell corporations, through bank accounts and forced jurisdictions to purchasing a condo in New York. And so the fact that I could trace that those funds back to the, a criminal offense is what was required for civil forfeiture, not a conviction of an individual in the U.S. or elsewhere on corruption charges. And the criminal offense could be an offense against the laws of another jurisdiction or the U.S. or both. That's right. That's correct. And usually we looked for dual criminality. So I mean, in most other countries, though, theft of state funds 
is illegal. Embezzlement of state funds is illegal. Procurement fraud is illegal. Abuse of office for personal gain is illegal. So it's usually not that difficult to come up with the predicate criminal offense. So there's a lot of discussion right now about ways that individual countries like the United States or the international community collectively could make it easier for people like you and your colleagues to find, trace, freeze, seize assets. Based on your experience, what would you emphasize as the highest priorities for legal or institutional reform, either at the domestic level or at the international level or both? If you had the ear of policymakers in, let's say, the U.S. Congress or the Treasury or an international body like the Financial Action Task Force, what would you, and maybe you've actually been able to do this for real, what would you say these are the two or three highest priority issues that you really need to fix these things, plug these loopholes, whatever, to make it easier, faster, more feasible to get the information that you need to seize assets that are the product of corruption or other illegal activity? I mean, it's very interesting because some of the facts that it took so long were the the process for mutual legal assistance. And I knew if I needed to get bank records out of Switzerland, it could take more than a year. And part of that year was the six months that my request sat at the Department of Justice. And it's it was manpower. So at the U.S. Department of Justice the US, or at the Swiss, at the, the, U, US, on the U.S. side? And, it, and it's not that they weren't doing a great job. They were, but they were understaffed. Because being the United States and having so many offenses around the world take place in either U.S. dollars involving U.S. banks or U.S. persons, they are overwhelmed with the number of requests they're getting from other 182 other countries. So for my request to meet the formula that's required by law to go to another jurisdiction, make sure that we meet their requirements for mutual legal assistance, it could be six months before my request leaves the United States. And so clearly for that six months, the foreign country doesn't even have my request yet. And then once they get it, their Ministry of Justice will review it. uh, it, Then they will have to get a court order in their own country to get bank records. It, It could take weeks or months for that receiving bank to pull 10 years or seven years worth of documents and then get them all stamped as properly approved, brought back from their Ministry of Justice to our Department of Justice to eventually back to the agent where they can just begin to start evaluating them and analyzing them. So if there would be a way to expedite, and part of that is more bodies for the Department of Justice, uh, international units that work with mutual legal assistance would be fantastic. But then there's things, the United States, we go speak abroad and the first thing people say is, well, clean up your own backyard. And so the lack of transparency in U.S. shell corporations, I mean, it's hard to say, we want to go across and tell you, okay, BBI, you know, you shouldn't have, you should be more transparent in your shell corporations. And they're like, okay, U.S., so you should be in Nevada, Delaware, Wyoming, you know, we need to clean up our own backyard and make sure that we are adhering to the international guidelines for anti-corruption. The United States is never supposed to be a safe haven for kleptocrats or their money, and yet we know that money from China, Russia, and other countries is being used to buy properties in the United States. That needs to be addressed. But the United States has taken great lengths in the last five years to apply more FBI and DOJ bodies to the fight of international corruption. It's just, it's a, corruption is probably one of the biggest problems facing 
the world right now that it needs to continue to be a priority and having the bodies and agents and prosecutors to investigate and prosecute those cases. Let me ask about the next step in the process that I alluded to just a moment ago. So in a lot of these cases, the U.S., you, the teams of the FBI, the DOJ, and so forth will be successful in identifying assets, often quite substantial amounts, very valuable assets, that you you are able to get at because they're assets in the U.S., U.S. bank accounts, U.S. properties, et cetera, or maybe assets outside the United States that the U.S. government can still get. So you've identified those assets. You've determined that they're there's a preponderance of the evidence that they're the proceeds of crime, mm-hmm. and you seize them. And now you have them, and you believe that the, this is money that, let's say, was stolen from the public treasury in a country in someplace like sub-Saharan Africa. Nigeria would mm-hmm. be an example here. Equatorial Guinea is another one that I know you worked on we've discussed. Mm-hmm. So now the country from which the money was stolen comes to the United States government and says, thank you very much. Our property was stolen. You were able to track it down. This is great. We would like our stolen property back now. After all, it was ours, and these former officials of ours looted it and put it somewhere else. But now that you found it, we are legally entitled to receive it back. Will you please hand it over? And I gather that the United States government sometimes will say, sure, but sometimes will be reluctant to do so directly. So can you talk a little bit about what the process looks like at that stage in the... um, the larger picture of asset recovery. So when the U.S. government has managed to freeze assets and the country from which those assets were stolen makes a request slash demand for those assets to be returned, what are the factors that influence how that issue is resolved? Well, you know, that is probably one of the biggest problems because when we're going after the proceeds of foreign corruption, it means that they were derived from a corrupt state, not always just one corrupt official, but an environment that was very corrupt. Nigeria is a good example as it relates relates to President Abacha. And Abacha is nationally recognized as one of the very most corrupt leaders in Nigeria, Uh, supposedly, allegedly took in excess of $5 billion through uh, schemes, bribes, kickbacks uh, while he was in office. And so now the United States is in a position where they've recovered assets that were traceable to Sunny Abacha. And the United States is working with President Buhari, the government of Nigeria, to return it. But you still have a lot of the same or second generation corrupt officials in that country. And the United States has an obligation because of the amount of time and resources dedicated to seizing those assets and working with our foreign partners to recover those assets to make sure that when the funds are returned, they don't disappear into the pocket of the next kleptocratic regime. Thank goodness uh, that is uh, determined at a pay grade higher than my own. But uh, DOJ, the U.S. State Department, then meets with the foreign officials, whether it's President Buhari and uh, the Ministry of Justice in Nigeria, and they work together to try to come up with a reasonable solution. Because the reality is, in the uh, example uh, of Sunny Abacha, the money that was stolen was stolen from pro- from the government that should have gone into programs that helped the people of Nigeria. And that means food, infrastructure, roads, hospitals, medication, that money was diverted into the pockets of President Abacha and his inner circle. So when the money is given back, 
the United States government would like to see that there is a visible and identifiable benefit to the people of Nigeria or because they're the victims. They're the ones who lost out by having a corrupt president and government. So uh, it is a long process because it's true. Um, you know, a sovereign government can come back in and say, hey, it's our money, just give it back to us. But the United States still feels like we have an obligation to say, well, wait a second, it took us seven years to find this money, to, to investigate it, to trace it back to criminal conduct. And, and go through the process of getting it forfeited. And we just have some obligation, only not only to the people of Nigeria, but also to the United States taxpayer to make sure that this money isn't just squandered, that the seven years of investigation was for naught. So uh, as I said, State Department, DOJ works with foreign partners. But I think there could be a lot more effort put into having maybe, you know, standard operating procedure up in force so that in the future people know it's like look we will help you recover the assets of your stolen regime but here's our policy i mean know it up front not negotiate after we get it forfeited but up front we already have mechanisms in place to try to make sure that the money goes to either health programs to infrastructure where there are multiple layers of transparency so that again they are on inflated contracts the money is going to do greater good whether it's working with World Bank, whether it's working with Doctors Without Borders, what mechanisms could be instituted by the United States that are already in a workable function so that when we sit down at the table with a foreign head of state, we say, here are your options. We're returning your money, but there's got to be some transparency. So it's fascinating. I know you didn't, as you said, this might have been handled ultimately by state or, mm -hmm. or justice or a different office from yours, but I am very much interested in your perspective on this issue because... A moment ago, you summarized exactly what I think a representative of Nigeria, for example, or any number of other countries, although Nigeria has really taken a, a more leadership role in, in advancing a position different from the one you just mm -hmm. laid out, in saying, wait a second, it's our money. This was our property. It was stolen from us. This was the property of the sovereign government of Nigeria. And who are you, United States government? to impose conditions on what happens to that money that belonged to us. The United Nations Convention Against Corruption seems to contain an unqualified blanket obligation on countries that recover stolen assets to return them to the governments that own them. And in some other contexts, I imagine if you as an FBI agent seized uh, a bunch of property that was stolen from me, you found it in a warehouse somewhere and you knew that it was my property, you would just have to give it back to me, not ask a lot of questions about what I was going to do with it. Was I going to use it responsibly? Was I going to allow it to be stolen again? And so forth. So again, with the recognition that these weren't necessarily the issues that you dealt with since you mm -hmm. were the one tracing and freezing the money, do you have a, a more of a response that you would give to, let's say, my hypothetical Nigerian uh, friend who, who makes that point? They say, look, it's, it's our money. It was stolen from us. Thank you for helping us find it. Maybe you can take a portion of it to cover your costs. But why is it why is the United States government entitled to impose any conditions whatsoever on our money? Well, you know, I mean, again, some of those questions would are more diplomatic than investigative in nature. So, you know, I could only give my personal opinion. And part of that would be, is it really the best use of the efforts of the FBI if you know that when the money is, like in the last 10 instances, we returned several billion dollars to 15 countries and in 13 of them, the money disappeared? then we also have an obligation to the American taxpayer who's paying my salary that the efforts of the FBI are used for the greater good. Quite honestly, if 
if we recovered out of 13 cases, $13 billion, and we knew that of the 11, of the 13 billion, we returned to 13 sovereign nations, 11 billion of it disappeared again. How much effort and good conscience could the United States continue to put into asset recovery and, and helping our foreign partners if we're really just helping the next corrupt regime put money back, you know, in their pockets? Is this then the best use of the efforts of the United States government if we're now facilitating grand corruption by turning money back over without any question as to its disposition? So I don't want to put words in your mouth, but to paraphrase, I think it sounds like part of your answer to my imaginary representative of the government of Nigeria is this is short-sighted. If we actually did have a rule that there were an unconditional blanket return of assets, then ultimately the U.S. government would stop investing substantial resources in tracking, seizing, freezing these assets in the first place, which would be kind of lose-lose. Is that I mean, fair it, it would certainly be a lose-lose. And I mean, I just think the government would have to say is like, if your subject is a drug dealer and you know that you know they're going to immediately take those that money and and go buy drugs and and put three thousand uh, tons of cocaine back on the market, I mean we'd have to ask ourselves, wait a second, is there a way that we you know can address this prior to just cutting somebody a check? And so I think the United States has an obligation to its taxpayers and also the moral obligation to make sure that we are not now facilitating a, a corrupt regime. If we just turned over 13, I mean, say just a billion dollars back to a corrupt regime, then we, we have just contributed to the downfall of a country by, you know, funding its current corrupt regime. And I think those questions have to be addressed um, as we try to repatriate the money. I mean, the first thing you notice is that a lot of countries don't return the money or it, it takes forever. And, and in our case, it, sometimes it takes forever as well because the, the litigation process can be so long. But I think you have to balance the obligation of the host country in getting their funds back with the reality of what's going to happen to those funds if I know the likelihood is greater than not that they will just disappear tomorrow, then was it really the best use of the American taxpayers' money to go after, spend seven years investigating that case and tracking, recovering, and helping our foreign partners if we're not helping our foreign partners and we're contributing to corruption? Let me ask you maybe a somewhat different question. I hope this question is not too delicate, but I'm curious about your perspective on which countries might be the ones that have the most work to do in terms of being, call it, responsible partners or collaborators in tracing dirty money around the world. There are certain countries that are have a bad reputation. So for a long time, Switzerland was everyone's favorite mm -hmm. uh, symbol of the secrecy of the international financial world and its contribution to money laundering and the famous numbered Swiss bank account. We've all seen movies where that comes up. And a lot of the small island states, especially though not exclusively the overseas territories and possessions of the United Kingdom, uh, Jersey, Guernsey, British Virgin Islands, and so forth. Uh, I'd be curious about your perspective today about both whether that reputation is deserved, but also where you think the priorities are in terms of foreign jurisdictions where we really have a lot of work to do to make sure that we're getting the kind of cooperation that we need in order to be able to trace and ultimately freeze these assets. Well, you know, that's very interesting because different kleptocrats from different parts of the world launder their money in different places. And I will have to say that 
starting working international corruption cases 20 years ago, things have changed, right? Because as you said, 20 years ago, Switzerland was the place to send your money. But Switzerland cleaned up its financial institutions and its financial sector, and they are no longer. They're still a international banking hub, but they are very cooperative with their foreign partners, and they don't want to be known as the money laundering haven. Same thing with the Caymans 15 years ago, the Seychelles 15 years ago. They were known money laundering havens. They're not today. They may still be great international banking centers, but they are very cooperative with international law enforcement. Whether they deserve it or not, unfortunately, Dubai, Abu Dhabi, the UAE is considered the new Switzerland. And it's, for whatever reason, it has become the destination of choice for a great number of foreign kleptocrats. A lot of Russians, a lot of Nigerians, a lot, a lot of everyone is offshoring great amounts of wealth in Dubai and Abu Dhabi, uh, a lot in real estate. Look at Palm Island in, in Dubai and see you know who's living there. And uh, I mean, I recently read an article that said 40% of all luxury condos in Dubai are being sold in Nigerians. So you have to ask, well, well why? Andorra is very interesting. Uh, years ago, when we were looking at Venezuela, we found that a great number of Venezuelans were banking in, the, in this tiny country of Andorra in the Pyrenees. And one of the headlines in uh, one of the New York papers was, you really have to want to bank in Andorra to bank in Andorra. Because it's not close to, unless you're in France and Spain, it's not near anything. It's this tiny little country. Why are Venezuelans banking in Andorra? Because it was Banco de Andorra uh, and several of its banks were just willing to violate uh, international money laundering and be a safe haven for Venezuelans money. Then you go to Europe, if you're looking at Russia, Ukraine, and some of the Eastern Bloc countries, they are laundering their money through Austria, through Liechtenstein, through Latvia. Some of those countries are very cooperative. Some of them um, are still wanting to be international money laundering havens for uh, Russian money. So. Uh, Liechtenstein, I think, especially. So it depends on which group of kleptocrats you're looking at as to who's being the most cooperative in readily accepting their money and and choosing to be a safe haven. And there's still a few Caribbean islands out there who it is their major source of income is, you know, having money move through their banks or offering visa investment programs and passports based on investment in their country. And they are certainly contributing to uh, kleptocracy. Do you have any thoughts about what could be done about that problem? Again, I know that your principal experience was as, as an investigator, sort of shoe leather work of all this. But since you're so deeply involved in the field, I'd be interested in your perspective on what, if anything, could be done to bring some of these other jurisdictions around and do examples like the Cayman Islands and Switzerland perhaps suggest causes cause for at least modest optimism that at least some of these countries can clean up their act and still do pretty well as international banking centers? I would have to say that a great deal is already being done. So whether it's FATF, you know, encouraging people to adhere to FATF uh, rules, whether it's pressure put by international banks. And the U.S. dollar is still the strongest international currency. So the big banks, Citibank, Wells Fargo, Bank of America, Bank of New York, they have 
international correspondent banking relationships. And so they have the ability to apply pressure when they see banks acting in a way that is unsafe to the, uh, the financial security of the United States, because those transfers are going to be moving through U.S. financial institutions. So the U.S. banks have a great deal of power to apply pressure in areas that wish to operate in U.S. currency but are doing unsafe banking. And they are already in the process. They already do this. U.S. banks work very hard to try to make sure that they know their customer's customer, that extra step of having some idea of whose money is moving through their banks. But it's just international watchdog groups, whether it's anti-corruption groups, investigative journalists, the, the U.S. and other financial banking all applying pressure and then identifying the problem. Good examples, uh, Treasury, when they sanctioned or identified Nuaru as a, or Vanuatu as known money laundering. And, and they said, okay, U.S. banks, here are 250 banks in Nuaru that we're saying you can't bank with anymore. Well, that shut down the fake bank industry in Nuaru. And it doesn't exist anymore. So there are tools that are already being applied successfully and then they just have to keep being applied. But you know, you're going to find partners or countries that aren't partners. I constantly hear that China is trying to hoard US dollars so that they can avoid having transfers circulate through US correspondent banking. Well, I mean, at some point the US will have to identify, well, how do we address that? You know, a lot of people will choose to operate in euros. Those euros won't affect the US financial system and won't give the US the opportunity to apply pressure on certain banks. So I could probably talk not only for the rest of our time this interview, but for hours to come about your experience as an FBI agent. But I want to make sure I leave at least a little bit of time in this interview to talk about what you've been doing since you retired from the FBI. Was it a couple of years ago now? Three years. Three years ago now. So you've been working with an organization called The Sentry. Maybe you can tell our listeners a little bit about that organization because you're still doing work that's similar to what you did at the FBI and that you're investigating assets that are the proceeds of kleptocracy, corruption, other crime. Talk a little bit about what your current job is, what your current organization does. Maybe say a little bit about the ways in which it is similar to, but also different from the kinds of work you did when you were still with the Federal Bureau of Investigation. Yeah, I mean, uh, I'm very fortunate. I have the best retirement job ever because I work for George Clooney and John Pendergast. And George Clooney and Don John Pendergast co-founded the Enough Project, 13, 14 years ago, along with other uh, celebrities from the Ocean's Eleven movie. They started Not On Our Watch and the NF Project, trying to put an end to genocide when the conflict was going on in Defour. Over the last more than a decade, they worked on affecting policy changes to uh, try to bring some stability to Central Africa, to Sudan, South Sudan, Congo, Kars, Somalia. And about four years ago, they said, you know what, we're not having the impact we want to have. And somebody recommended, you know, you need to go after the money. And so three and a half years ago, they started the Sentry. And the Sentry's goal is to investigate financial crimes, to investigate the greed that is fueling war crimes and atrocities in Sudan, South Sudan, Central African Republic, and the D Democratic Republic of Congo. And it's the same skills I used as an FBI agent, but now applied to Sudan, South Sudan, DRC, and CAR. So how is money leaving these countries? These are, we consider these violent kleptocracies because they are kleptocrats, corrupt officials who have overtaken the financial sector, the business sector. They are using their militaries often as tools of war against their own civilian population to stay in power. 
And so we investigate the greed that is fueling those war crimes. We look at enablers. You know, we look at the, the countries around South Sudan and Sudan, Uganda, Kenya, Ethiopia, Eritrea, and say, you know, are you facilitating the conflict that's going on in South Sudan right now? You are knowingly holding assets belong, belonging to South Sudanese uh, corrupt elites. Can we work with those governments to try to affect change so that they're not a safe haven for the South Sudanese to offshore their wealth in those countries? Can we bring evidence to any government, whether it's the United States, because we provide our information to the United States Security Council, Treasury, OFAC, but any other country, the UK to Australia, will say, this is the evidence we collected. There is money from South Sudan being offshored in your country, or you are knowingly or unknowingly helping to facilitate corruption in these countries. And is the information that is collected by the century, can it be used to affect tools, sanctions, Global Magnitsky here in the United States, uh, OFAC sanctions, UN sanctions, to try to apply pressure to these countries to do the right thing, to have good governance, to have opaque transactions. And more than half the people in South Sudan are displaced right now. 50% of the population is facing food insecurities. And there is a direct nexus between the corruption that is going on by the military and political elites of South Sudan and the impact it's having on the civilian population. So what we want to see is good governance in these countries with an end to the civil war. 383,000 people have been killed in South Sudan since the civil war began. So can the evidence we collect be used to affect positive change in those countries? I want to pick up on that theme you were just discussing, because one of the things that has really struck me in hearing you speak on these issues before is the way that your work at the Century has given you maybe even more insight into the human costs of these forms of corruption. I don't think anyone listening to our podcast, given our audience, needs to be convinced that corruption is harmful, that it's not victimless and so forth. But some of the kinds of harms that derive from this kind of corruption that you've had the, the ability to see through your work are really, I would say, of a different, qualitatively different from the kinds of even very significant economic costs uh, or other social costs that are the ones that I often think about. And maybe it would be useful for you to say a little bit uh, for our listeners to just explain some of these connections between grand corruption or kleptocracy and war crimes or mass atrocities. I mean, it, it's overwhelming. Sudan is going through a, a lot of conflict right now and transition as uh, Omar Bashir has been removed from office. But 41 million people live in South Sudan. 50% of them live under the poverty level and, and face food insecurity issues, which means food insecurity is a very nice way to say people are starving. So I concentrate predominantly on South Sudan. And South Sudan has been in a civil war for years. 383,000 people, I said, have been killed in that civil war. But about 4 or 5 million people have been displaced. So 2.3 million people in a country are living in refugee camps. And if you go visit a refugee camp, you're talking, I'm, I, I live in a hut. I have to go you know, a mile down the street, get water in a, in a container and bring it back to cook with. I don't know always where the next meal is coming from. I mean, living in the refugee camps because they're so overwhelmed is a horrible existence. Then you have another 2 million people who are displaced within the country, living in the bush because they can't go back to their village or their village was burned down by the army. 
rape as a tool of war. We have been uh, looking at the like what's what's behind the quadrupling of rape in South Sudan. And one of the things that we found is like there is a direct connection of the troops guarding resources, you know, making sure that the, the current government of South Sudan has access to the mining operations, the oil operations, the teak operations. Well, those soldiers are able to work with impunity from their actions. And so in just Upper Nile State, which is an oil-rich state in South Sudan, 1,300 women were raped in five months by the army. 1,300 women in five months. And yet no prosecutions for rape for any of the women in South Sudan. The only time people were brought to trial on rape in South Sudan is when foreigners were attacked. So, I mean, whether it's rape and gang rape, whether it's murder of civilians, children being put into a hut and then burned alive, men being put into a shipping container in 103 degree heat where they die of heat fatigue and starvation. It is a level of aggression where the military is being used as a tool of war against its own civilian population, as opposed to protecting its civilian population. And this is, in your view and in the view of others, connected to these issues of corruption and kleptocracy, because, of course, wartime atrocities have unfortunately always been with us. They often occur in the context of what you might think of as political or ideological motivations. I think a lot of us who have studied the mass slaughter of the 20th century, very often the story was, or at least seemed to be, ideological uh, or about power for the sake of power. But again, what, what so struck me in seeing some of the presentations that you've given in other contexts about what you're seeing in South Sudan is that it doesn't seem as much ideological in the traditional sense as much as it is about safeguarding the ability of a, the top group of leaders to extract wealth from the country. Is that, is that a fair summary? It is a fair summary because, like, I'll use again South Sudan. Uh, one of the things we did is we mapped out the corporate footprint of five South Sudanese elites, and that include the president, his brother-in-law, Gregory Vasili, and two former chiefs of staff, and a current general in the army. And their corporate footprint over 175 companies on which their family members have an ownership interest. Well, you can bet your life that those companies are being awarded contracts and in all of the most lucrative aspects of the financial and business sector. So it's mining, it's oil, it's oil transport, it's teak, it's charcoal. Every place where you can make money, that's where their family members are being awarded contracts. And so in the military, you have generals who pocketed money that should have fed their troops. And then when their troops are saying, wait, we haven't been paid, the generals will say, well, go and get for yourselves. And they're like, what do you mean go and get for yourselves? And one of the generals told a one of his soldiers, he goes, you have a gun, don't you? He's like, go and get for yourselves. And, and frequently go and get for yourselves means you are allowed to rape and pillage to fill your pockets, to fill your mouth, and to do whatever you want to do because you can do it with impunity because I haven't paid you. So, But I want you to stay in the army. So go do what you have to do and that includes rape and pillage. And pillage is obviously a war crime. Uh, rape and gang rape by the army is an atrocity and a war crime. And so, yes, there is a direct nexus between the corruption that is going on in South Sudan and the war crimes and atrocities that are occurring there. I think as we're reaching the end time for, for end, end of the time for our interview, that's a very useful reminder to all of us of exactly what is at stake when we're talking about what often seem like technical or legal issues about asset seizure and asset forfeiture that ultimately, 
as you said, the those who founded this organization were informed. It's it's often all about the money. That that money or the desire for that money is very often what fuels these what for someone like me is almost inconceivable levels of atrocity. So I think that's a very good reminder. At the same time, I would hate to end this wonderful discussion on such a down and dark note. So do you think perhaps we could conclude the interview with something a little bit more optimistic? And maybe the answer is no, but could you give some of our listeners some reason for hope or optimism that we are likely to see more progress on this whole cluster of issues that you've described over the next several years or more. Yes, I can. Oh, good. And, you know, and, and I'm delighted to say so, because look at the change that's occurred recently, right? Maduro, who is one of the most corrupt uh, leaders in Venezuela, we believe he is on his way out the door. And the reason the people are so anxious to get rid of Maduro is because they have lived with no food, no product, no anything uh, in horrible existence because of grand corruption. So there's one. So we hope that in the very near future, there will be a different path forward for the people of Venezuela. But who would have thought that uh, Omar Bashir, al-Bashir, would no longer be the president after 30 years of rule in Sudan? But because of corruption, because protesters took to the streets because of the grand corruption. Uh, Syria, I mean, Assad is a horrible situation, but protests there started because of grand corruption. Uh, look at uh, Gambia. Who would have thought that Yahya Jammeh would not still be the president of Gambia, but he got elected out because the opposition party was fighting on an anti-corruption thing? Who would have thought that President Buhari would have beat Good Luck Jonathan in Nigeria? Nobody, but he did, and he just won a second term. So. The constant fight against corruption does have a payoff, and the protesters, the civil society, the investigative journalists, the people of the country have to keep pushing and expecting honesty out of their kleptocrats. Thank you so much. I don't think I could say anything after that, so I will just thank you for joining us today. Again, my guest has been Deborah Lepravat, currently with The Sentry formerly of the U.S. Federal Bureau of Investigations. This has been Kickback, the Global Anti-Corruption Podcast. Deborah, thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Anthony.